0: And a good Friday to everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Mining Stock Daily. Boy, what a week. Finally, some great price action and gold breaking through some of that consolidation. And uh, recording this uh, Thursday, and we are above 1600. It seems like we're holding it there. It's a good job. The miners are moving up. Finally. Yeah, it's been a good week for us, right? Thanks for tuning in. We got an in-depth interview today. Very special guest on the show. I've actually been trying to get Mr. Tony Jensen, who is now the former CEO of Royal Gold, onto the show for quite some time. Uh, Tony's been uh, he's been very kind to me over the years he's always given me uh, a lot of his uh, insight and uh, always stops and say hi and and asks how it's, how the show's going and I uh, ask him how Royal Gold's doing, and how his uh, time up into his retirement was uh looking so happy to welcome tony jensen on the show uh finally after a number of years of knowing him and uh, it's just a great interview we go through a lot about uh his time and a career from turning mining engineer to financier to ceo of arguably one of the biggest uh Royalty companies in the game right now in the gold space. So it's great conversation. I'm glad you can tune in Did go a little long, about 30 minutes total in length. So if you are listening on Amazon Alexa, you are listening to an abbreviated version. You can find the full interview anywhere else you get your podcasts. I would like to thank our sponsors for the show. That includes Corvus gold, Integra resources, Western copper and gold and Pacific empire minerals. Thank you so much for your continued support. And uh, be sure to check the show of the Metals, Money, and Markets Weekly with me and Mickey Fulpa later today, Friday afternoon after the market closes. And we're going to wrap up all the numbers from the markets and the precious metals uh, today on kitco.com, which is uh, going to deliver that show. Uh, Please be sure to tune into that. If you are attending PDAC next week and uh, will be in Toronto, I will be presenting at the letter writer's presentation Sunday afternoon around the 2 o'clock area. That's in room 801. I'm going to be delivering a little bit of a different uh, note, uh, mainly focused on the young investor uh, and the young speculator. So if you are interested in that type of discussion, please be sure to come into the presentation at 2 o'clock hour there at PDAC. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Tony. It was a great discussion and um, I'm just really happy we could get it done and and uh, celebrate his career uh, as he uh, moves more thoroughly into retirement. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll catch you on the flip side. And welcome back to Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall. Thanks so much for tuning in. I have a a very special in-depth interview uh, with somebody I've known for a number of years because, well, basically because we're both local here in Denver. Uh, That is the now former CEO of Royal Gold, Mr. Tony Jensen. Tony, welcome to the show. This is an interview I've uh, been trying to get for quite some time. Trevor, a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, I have a number of things I want to ask you, because, I, and I think a lot of people are just very curious now that your time with Royal Gold is coming to an end. I mean, you're officially retired, but you're still in a, a suit and tie here in the office, so <laughs> you're, you haven't gone too far away from home. Um, but talk about you know, you came on in 2006 as a CEO. I believe you were COO before that. Correct. Um, and if you can summarize your time as CEO, you know, in the multiple cycles that we saw, we've seen in gold over that time frame, mm-hmm. you know, what do you tell your friends now?
1: Well, look, it, it, um, it was, I have to tell you that it was more of an accident than it was a plan all along To uh, to, to be able to work with Royal Gold and build it into the company that it has today. Uh, in the earlier days, uh, we were were focused very much on on buying existing royalties. and In about two thousand and five, it was it was Wheaton Precious Metals, silver Wheaton at the time, and Royal Gold that started financing. and And as I think about that and how that has mushroomed into a much bigger opportunity for us to to participate in. And even today, much bigger deals that are available to us. uh, As I think about all of the, what what, what was it, close to 13 years, I guess, as a CEO, 14 Mm -hmm. years, um, and and something in the order of 16 or 17 years with the company, those cycles have uh, certainly were experienced during that period of time. And the thing that amazed me about the, the royalty product or the streaming product is it was always applicable in every kind of environment that we found ourselves in. Um, in a time where industry had overinvested and over-leveraged um, their companies, we were there to provide capital when no other capital was there to help those companies uh, balance the, the balance sheet into a more productive uh, environment. And When the growth was happening, we were there to help fuel that growth. So we've been able to be relevant in, in periods of, of high activity, in periods of low activity, uh, and in periods of really crisis in the in the business. Um, it's a very, very flexible and malleable uh, business model that we have. But being being in the business for that period of time, uh, it's just been an absolute pleasure to be associated with the, mm. the colleagues that we've had. Um, over the last really 40 years now in the business. So yeah, we've I've seen a, a few different cycles through that period of time.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because we, we're having this conversation the day gold actually closes above 1600 on, on a healthy move. It wasn't a big fear move like mm-hmm. we saw back in January. And so I keep on thinking, you know, where we are in the cycle, and you know, I've heard anywhere from we're in a second or third inning of a, of a cycle here to we're in the fourth or fifth inning. and. You know, you can listen to all those pundits online say, you know, gold's going to ten thousand twenty thousand. And I think the smart ones kind of just sit back and watch and make sure that gold's still healthy no matter what. Mm-hmm. But where you see where you what do you see now with this cycle? I mean, do you with sixteen hundred, are we is gold back in a place where you thought it would have been ten years ago?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I uh, your baseball analogy let me just uh, build on that just a little bit and say that we are in an inning of an uh, infinite amount of innings because we're you know i don't think of gold in a short term cycle we had we had a good peak of gold in in early 2013 late 2012 and then it pulled back for a, a bit and now we're starting to build momentum back again but you know, I look at that trough and it really doesn't bother me very much at all, because I'm looking at decades out into the future. I've been long gold for 40 years, I'll continue to be long gold my, during my entire life. And it's not that, that I'm a gold bull, not at all, I'm a dollar bear. I'm a fiat currency bearer. Mm-hmm. And and that's not uh, end of the world type of statement that I'm making, What what I mean by that is that in today's in, uh, in today's um, political world we're not ever going to see liquidity pulled back there's going to continue to be more and more liquidity pumped into the, the system and we're going to live in a inflation environment however skinny that inflation might be I don't think we're going to live in deflation for very long I think our our economic system would collapse if we did that so what that means is that the value of a dollar tomorrow is less than what it is today and gold is going to keep pace and maintain its value during that period of time. And so it's just going to be a store of value. And, and I don't really get too concerned about whether gold's up or down, $100, because again, I'm looking at the decade back into the, uh, de- the decade into the future. And gold's going to do well. It's going to continue to go well. Um, 1600 today does not at all seem overheated to me. Uh, not compared to the amount of liquidity that's been put into the system all around the world.
0: Mm -hmm. It's funny, because I've actually had a conversation, some people would, probably if they were listening in, would have called it a heated conversation just about the purpose of, of the dollar and the forcing of the liquidity and the money printing and the repo madness that's going on right now. And my side of the conversation was there's nothing guaranteeing you wake up tomorrow and the dollar doesn't exist or doesn't have the same oomph as it does right now. And I don't want that to scare you, but that's just simple facts, right? And so this is where silver and gold kind of play a matter into it. Now, that's a lot for people to swallow and want to understand or even acknowledge, right? So. In your time and like in your time in, in your lifespan like when you've had those conversations with people that maybe don't understand that other aspect outside of fiat currency how do you appropriately have those conversations with people
1: yeah well I and, and you, it's it seems obvious to me and it may be obvious to you but it, you're right it isn't obvious to a lot of people because in our youth uh, we've been brought up to understand what money is and money is what's a yeah. piece of paper that's U.S. dollar or maybe it's uh, maybe it's a yen or or a euro and we we really f- understand that's that's value that we can trade upon but as you know it's it's simply something that is declared fiat mm-hmm. currency mm-hmm. and and so it may not have value and if we if we don't um, uh, respect the, the amount of, of dollars that we're pumping into the system, it may not maintain that value. And, and so it's, there's a delicate balance. And The interesting thing that we see today, I mean gold's hitting highs in different currencies. And why is that? Because everybody else is putting a lot of money into the system as well, a lot of currency into the system. So everybody's playing by that game. And the only way to be counter to that game and to, have, to, to preserve your your wealth is to have a little bit of that in gold. Mm-hmm. So, in it, it, I don't. Um, I I certainly hope that we don't wake up someday and in the dollar is, is gone south in a big way or or any other currency.
0: <laughs> so we'll have bigger problems. Big, much bigger <laughs> problems.
1: And I don't want to scare anybody. I don't think that's where we're going. I'm just saying that you don't have to be an Armageddon type of person to believe that gold is a good economic piece of insurance in your portfolio.
0: You mentioned you've been a gold, you know, gold bug for 40 years. I mean, you started out as a mining engineer, hmm. uh, at South Dakota School of Mines. Correct. And yeah. uh, I guess just kind of curious, like, and you worked in a number of different projects as a mining engineer, before you went and jumped out and to the finance side. Yeah. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, why, why did you make that jump? Well,
1: you know, I love being a mining engineer. I love working at different operations. I worked at three different operations during my career in Montana, in Chile, and then back in Elko, Nevada. And it was during my early years, um, and it must have been in my early 30s, I would imagine, when I I realized that there's so much in this business I didn't understand. I mean I, I knew reserves I knew operations and cost of production and understood the elements that were right in front of me but I didn't I couldn't read a balance sheet or an income statement and and I, I realized that that's that's a skill that I really would like to have had. Um, I had a chance to uh, in our, my early marriage to to have some time to study for the GMAT, and I, I really wanted to go to school um, in at Stanford or maybe St. Mary's or Berkeley in the, the Bay Area. One of the, all those schools are in the Bay Area because our corporate office in Plaster Dome, U.S. at the time was in San Francisco, and I'd hope to be able to do a sabbatical and perhaps work in the summertime because I already had a couple of children. And uh, a, a dear. Uh, colleague and mentor and friend of mine was Cole McFarland. He was the president of Glasterdome US and he came to the mine site in Whitehall, Montana, and um and I approached him about possibly going and getting my MBA and just going on a sabbatical basis and would I be able to work in the summer times? and he said, Tony, I don't really think that you need an MBA. I think that's overrated and you probably We'll do just fine without it in this business. And I was really, really disappointed because I I knew that modern mining is definitely going to have to have a blend of engineering and finance to be successful. And that same gentleman called me up about two weeks later. He said, uh, I still don't think you need that MBA, but come to San Francisco and be my assistant and I'll teach you everything you need to know. What an opportunity, right?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So I I, I jumped at it. Next thing you knew, we were headed to to the Bay Area, and uh, and I still went to night school at Golden Gate University to get my finance degree, and it was the most uh, important inflection point in my career, I think, and I was able to use that so much more effectively than with my engineering skills and understand both sides of the business. Not immediately; it came with time and it came with opportunity. Uh, I was next pushed into La Coipa, uh into an operational role. I say push, that's not the proper word. We we moved around a lot in Plastrodome to a, uh, to the benefit of the employees, and it was just a great opportunity. Uh, and shortly after a couple, two and a half years of, of another mining experience, I was asked to be a treasurer of the Plastrodome Latin America group in Santiago. And I said yes. And then I said, what does a treasurer do? <laughs> and, and so I, I had another great mentor, Bill Hayes, that is still with the Roll Gold Board, chairman of the Roll Gold Board. Uh, he was the, the president of the Latin America division at the time, and he took a chance and, and just gave me an opportunity to learn, and, and uh, that just continued to to uh, take advantage of my financial side of my my degrees. Uh, or my skill set uh, and then it wasn't until I made the move out of out of Plasterdome completely in 2003 and joined Royal gold that um, that became a bigger focus than the operational side um, and I truly believe it's such a critical weapon to have and it's a huge advantage if you have both sides of the mm. of the business the technical and the financial
0: yeah you know my uh, uh, my father his agriculture-based, but he has an economics degree. And we lost, uh, we lost the dairy farm in the 80s when it was never good to farm. And uh, well, I remember one time I asked him, I was like, well, you know, what do you miss about farming? And he he's like, well, I miss working with the animals. Yeah. But now he's on, like, the finance side, or, you know, he just retired from the finance side. Still in the egg business. He's still on the loan side, actually. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm just wondering, like, do you miss working in the pit, Absolutely. you know, getting your hands hands dirty, all that Absolutely. stuff. Moving right, rock.
1: I'm right there with your 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 father. And you, you know, you can't do you can't be highly successful, I don't think, in the royalty and streaming business without understanding and and having a little dirt under your fingernails. I mean, it, it's, it's so important to be able to to sit at the same tables and understand the issues that your your partners having. And I miss Absolutely, I miss all of those things. Those were some of the funnest days of my career were operationally based.
0: Yeah, yeah. What about uh, the way the business, you know, mineral exploration is set up now? Um, you know, one could argue that there's, we have a lot of geologists that go from one project to the other, um, and some of those companies, even as they move, still exist, right? And that so now there's a saturation of companies with questionable projects. I mean, do you think the business model itself is poised for some sort of change that needs to happen to get these, get these companies with not viable projects to just disappear? And
1: Well, look, uh, nature will take care of itself there. I mean, th- those projects will not get funded if they're not viable, and it may take some time uh, for those companies to, to die on the vine, but I mean, that's just nature. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, the whole the whole industry will continue to evolve. And uh, the thing ab- about all of those folks that are out there breaking rock today with a pick and looking for mineral in that rock, we'd be lost without them, because the, the larger companies' exploration budgets just aren't nearly sufficient enough to feed how much replacement reserves they have to do on an annual basis. So thank goodness. There are all those, those folks that do have that passion, and some of them do find really, really good projects. Yeah. So I, I don't want to—I'm uh, not— you know, I, I, those things will take care of themselves over time. If there's, if there's a project that—or a company that just really doesn't uh, have a sustainable business model, it right. will all be revealed.
0: We mentioned earlier about cycles. and So I actually wanted to take a step back and ask you about that 2012 area, you know, when gold reached $1,900 US, and you were the CEO of you know, arguably probably one of the most well-known royalty companies in the gold space. I mean, what was that time like? And how do you, looking at where we're at now, like, do you see similarities in the build-up now as you saw in, say, 2010,
1: 2011? Well, you know, the, I often would, would think and rarely would I have the opportunity to say that I'm not sure if I'm rooting for a good gold price or a poor gold price. Because uh, sometimes when the gold price runs like it did, the, the other financing opportunities were so prevalent for
0: producers. It's everybody wanted to. Yeah. They yeah. could go
1: and they could issue equity, just boom, boom, boom. Or they could go and, and get a big chunk of debt. And, say, and then, of course, price expectations on the other side of the deal were really inflated, and so you, if you look back in Royal gold 's um, uh, uh, history, we didn 't do a lot of deals at that higher gold price, and the deals that we did do, we didn't price them at the spot gold price. We mm-hmm. priced them at something we thought was a little bit more more steady, uh, fine with anticipating a higher gold price into the future, but uh, i don 't like to buy things high on, on peaks. And and so we were a little bit more quiet at that time. In fact, we did a financing uh, in September of two thousand twelve, and it wasn't very long after that the gold price had moved away. And but the good news was is that we were completely financed up then. We had a billion dollars of firepower. Yeah. And. We talked a little bit about nature just in the last questions you were asking about the exploration group. Well, nature took its course on all the major producers that had over levered their balance sheet, and it took a few years. And what the really exciting time in our business was was 2015, when all of a sudden we had major gold mining companies and major base metal companies. That needed to sell some assets and one of the ways they could sell assets to help the balance sheet was to sell the stream on some of the uh, some of the finest assets in the world and so we had a great opportunity to get involved and we invested i don't know i think it was 1.4 billion dollars in three months four months something like that hmm. we were very very active and that's that's a very exciting time because these assets were multiple decade assets, at least a, a few of them were multiple decade assets. And we, not only us, our competitors did it as well. And we were able to layer, layer in you know, 20-year, go into 30-year assets within a very small period of time. We used to have a board of director member um, that uh, just was fabulous in his guidance. And he said, always be in a position to buy. Make sure you're always in a position to buy and that was um, a lesson we kind of learned the hard way at one point in our okay. career. We missed a deal, and we weren't in a position to buy, but we had ever since then, we had put ourselves in a position to buy. It almost seems like
0: a very contrarian way of running a company.
1: Well, it is. It is, um, but but you know, in business school they teach just to, to buy low and sell high, right? Sure. So it's not really that contrarian. It's just a matter of being patient. Yeah. And the hardest thing that a CEO has to do is to be patient.
0: Yeah, yeah well, I could understand that. Well, especially when you're answering to shareholders who anymore are demanding action all the time, right?
1: They, they, they are, and their, their desires tend to change over time. Sometimes they're, they're very much focused on discipline, and other times they're focused on growth. And I think we're in a much healthier place, industry and investor, today than what we were seven years ago.
0: I wanted to ask you about you, Tony, the deal maker. Um, because I, I, I've asked a few people, you know, leading up to this conversation, I oh, I'm interviewing Tony. I, I want to ask him about, you know, his version of the art of the deal, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a couple times people have mentioned, you know, he's, he, you have a reputation of being a tough negotiator at the table. Mm. Um, and I'm just, just kind of curious, you know, how do you, when you get two parties at the table and they each want something different out of the same outcome, you know, what, what type of, you know, did it take some practice for you to, like, really understand how to approach these deals, how to approach people, how to respect the person across the table, and, but also ultimately sometimes just walking away and saying it's not going to happen? Yeah.
1: So you know, there's there's all different degrees of, of negotiating, um, but when you're locked in, when you're locked in and you've got a an executed term sheet and both parties realize that this is a good deal for both companies, you know, the, you're you're in a position where you're going to find a way through. Now I may feel stronger about one position than you feel about another, but. Uh, you, you can recast that deal and make it on the same economic terms for both parties, and both parties can be happy with the outcome. Maybe you need more flexibility, maybe, you need, maybe I need more security, it might not be necessarily an economic uh, factor up front, uh, maybe you need a line of credit, You know, it's things like that. We can, we can talk about other things that can enhance the deal, yet s- still keep it economically neutral and and i i love deal making i really do and the smarter and more capable the counterparty the more i enjoy it because that means you're only talking about the real important issues if you're if you're working with an inexperienced counterpart you know there's a level of of, of trust that you have to build over a period of time and to make sure that one doesn't feel like they're getting taken advantage of but when you, you come with a very experienced group of people, boy, the conversations move fast. It's just a thrill.
0: Do you, do you feel like the, the royalty company comes to the table with more tools in its toolkit than the producing company does?
1: No, my gosh. We've done deals with smaller companies and larger companies, and you can find lots of tools in their toolkit. I mean, just islands of brilliance yeah. that, um, that we've encountered— and again, we really want, you really want to go, I shouldn't say go up against. That's not really what we do at roll Gold. In my experience, I, I don't speak for Royal Gold today, but when I was, was working with them, we, we come with a partner attitude. And mm-hmm. we start with it, we, we negotiate with it, and we
0: operate with it. So were those traits of negotiation, you know, what were those first, you know, you as CEO early days that were doing those negotiations? Like, was it difficult for you? I mean, and how did you evolve to make those deal, those deal makers better?
1: Well, you know, I, again, I had, uh, I just had a bunch of great mentors that I was close to for 20 years in Placer Dome where I had a chance to get close to a number of, of different things. And maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't doing a billion-dollar royalty and streaming transaction, maybe it was negotiating on a fleet of trucks at a mine site, or maybe it was a blasting contract, or maybe it was a chance to work alongside the Latin America team to sell our interest in Zaldivar. Um, but there is just, I mean, it just doesn't happen overnight. You have to, you, you have to be given an opportunity, and, and you don't have to have a formal mentor, but watch people and see what they do and see what works and see what doesn't and And then the deals we started here at Roll Gold were uh, you know a five million dollar deal was a big deal for us in the early days. Roll gold was only a four hundred million dollar market cap company in two thousand three hmm. so but it doesn't it doesn't matter we, you come to the, the table no matter the deal size with the same the same attitude and the same respect for your counterparty
0: um, if if you were to if, if, if this interview, say, makes the rounds throughout the office here, you know, and this, these were some parting words of yours, I mean, what advice would you give your colleagues in the entire royalty space as they move forward?
1: Uh, maintain uh, your business model. Stick to your knitting. Do what you do best. Uh, protect the integrity of the, the business model. <clears throat> the The thing that we have been so fortunate to do in the streaming and royalty sector is having the complement of market to to provide us with a premium in the marketplace. Uh, The the streaming sector, royalty sector—I'll use those terms uh, interchangeably—has always been, since I've been involved with it, at a higher premium in valuation than any other sector of this business. And that can be destroyed in a heartbeat by going too far adrift from the, the principles of what the investor's investing in. They're investing in growth. They're investing in a lower-risk vehicle, a vehicle that doesn't necessarily have capital and operating risk obligations to it, something that's very simple, scalable, and diverse. And if you can keep all those things available, the premium will still be there. And you know, Growth happens when growth happens. You can't force it. When you do, you're probably doing a dilutive deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so patience and protecting the business model are the two, two things I would leave behind.
0: How about for management executives who are on the other side of the table negotiating with royalty companies? What advice would you give them?
1: I would say that one is, is equally uh, quick to tongue, and I would say um, give royalty financing a fair shake. And as an operator, you know, often royalties and streams were thought of as as parasites. And uh, those were put in place for a very good reason. Often they're previous owners or something of the property. And they gave the operating company the venue to to move into production. Today, it's a much more sophisticated uh, product. But compare equity, compare debt, and compare Stream and royalty financing on a, a per share basis over time. Equity is not free. and this is another thing that I you know I've always considered my, my um, operating philosophy more back to the basics than any, anything new. and at, at Royal gold, we had the lowest share count still due of any company in the GDX, and we really, really coveted and cared for and stewarded the shares, and we didn't, we didn't simply issue them every time an investment banker came by and said, you know, you've got all kinds of people that are interested in a piece of it. Because we knew that the dilution would catch up to us, and so we only wanted to issue as, enough, as much as we needed to continue to grow the business, and that we couldn't fund out of cash flow, because funding out of cash flow is, is probably the most accretive thing that anybody can do in their company so um and if you compare as an operator uh stream and royalty financing, I think if you pull all your your guards down, you would find out that it's a it has a, a significant amount of attributes and it's very competitive, especially when a company thinks about risk diversification and they they think well maybe i'm maybe i'm um in a country I just don 't want to put two billion dollars into i 'm okay with a billion but i don 't want to risk the whole company on that country on that country or that deposit or whatever it might be, instead of bringing in a jV partner which has a lot of the attributes of a stream except the streamer doesn 't sit at the table and doesn 't get in the way of operational decisions. Um, I think if you keep that with an open mind it can be a very Good cost of capital is first, and a secondly, uh, a good replacement for other business models that we have, other, other uh, structures that we have in the business.
0: Uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so I want to start trying to wrap things up, Tony. But I do want to say that, you know, in the last few years that I have known you, like, you have always given me a little bit of your time. So I really appreciate that. I know you're-, you're welcome. I know you have given me your time as well. Thank you very well, much. Well, you're one of the nicest guys I've ever met in this space. And, uh, you know, years yeah. of wisdom. So thank you so much. But I, but I don't want to hog all that. <laughs> I don't want to keep it for myself. And so, you know, for people, as we now enter this bull market, uh, maybe the explorers and the juniors will finally start catching on and we'll see more volumes into their stocks. For people investing, what would your advice be to them, as they continue to maybe reallocate capital from general markets over to resource investing? Right.
1: So, so first of all, I I I I look at gold as an investment for all times, not just in a potential uprising uh, of the gold price. If you look at the World Gold Council, in the um, uh, on their I think it's called Gold Hub, they have a very interesting chart there that shows how gold performed. In the last 15 years, last 10 years, last 5 years, against the S&P 500 and, and the U.S. dollar, and all kinds of different things, and it's it, it's it's an attractive investment um, in many different environments. So I would say, don't necessarily look to gold as um, a short-term play and an option or a sectoral play. Look at it as a long-term mm-hmm. investment, and then. Once you've crossed over that, then picking a gold investment is probably the most challenging thing that uh, a new entrant would have to do. And it's very, very difficult for a new entrant to go in and pick that one asset company. You live and die by that one one asset. And so I would say look for a diverse portfolio, Uh, look for a solid record, track record. And then do your homework and look at the the trading multiples for that particular company, how that company trades, and see if it's the right time to
0: invest. Do I ask you stock picks now? Never.
1: <laughs> I, I, don't, I won't give you any of that.
0: Tony, thank you so much for your time. I'm really glad. And congratulations on your retirement. Thank you very much. What's the next uh, chapter in your life? Oh, look, I've already joined
1: one board. I've agreed to join
0: another. (laughs) So you're still working. (laughs) Well, you know, I
1: love the business, and uh, I'm not really too interested in managing anything anymore, but I don't want to go too far away from the business. One of the the companies that I'm involved with is in the utility, uh, electric and natural gas, so I love learning things, and I'm learning a lot there. And uh, the other one is in the mining sector. Um, but there's that. There's family. There's, there's all kinds of things I, I have interests in, and there's um, a lot of debt that I need to pay back to society. So I hope to find some good things to do with my time socially as well.
0: Well, and I hope you enjoy that. Thank you so very much. Thank you yeah, so much, Tony. Time. It's Tony Jensen, the now former CEO of Royal Gold.